This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and Kate is under the weather this week, so instead, I'm joined by someone else with a cute accent, a voice that is very familiar to listeners on the network, none other than the supreme commander of Trek of Film Europe, Colin Higgins. Hey, Colin, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> <laughs> I like that introduction. Yes, I've been through Decon. I've got the cream on. I'm ready to go. <laughs> You know, people always comment on Kate having a cute accent, so I figure, well, they're going to love yours too. It's it's different, but it's cute, right? The English accent's the best. (laughs) That's right. Now, I have another question for you, Colin. As Supreme Commander, that's a really fancy title. As Supreme Commander, do you get to design your own belt buckle? I do indeed, yes, and it's, it's got it's got lights that move across the middle of it, and they go up and down, and and I wear it with my Star Trek T-shirt that lights up as well, so I'm fully illuminated in all the situations. Excellent, excellent, and of course you get big shoulder pads as well, so you've got the whole outfit yeah. going there. I see. All right. Well, it's great to have you with me this week because as some of our listeners may not know, because we have a lot of listeners to this show who don't necessarily listen to other shows in the network. Outside of Warp 5, yeah, yeah, you've got to listen to the other (laughs) shows, people. But outside of Warp 5, I think you're responsible for the majority of the enterprise coverage that we have on the network. Yeah. uh, Trek News News and Views did extensive uh, enterprise coverage. Yeah, we we get to it every five weeks on the ready room because we do that rotation. But yeah, you did it uh, quite more often there on TNV. About every third week. (laughs) (laughs) So big, big enterprise fan, no doubt. Well, this is a little change for me too, because we normally record in the afternoon and tonight we're recording at night. And it's nice because I've got myself a nice glass of avian brandy of the Zindi variety here in my hand tonight. And it's from one of the last bottles known to exist in the whole galaxy. Wow. See, now, this, this is the shoes on the other side of the foot now, because last time I did the Red Room, I could drink and you couldn't. <laughs> and now, because it's your evening, you can drink and I can't, because I've got to drive my car again in a bit, so. That's right. Because normally when we record, yeah, for you, it's like, when you're on the Ready Room, it's like 2 a.m., but you've got a yeah. big pint in your hand, <laughs> even though it's the middle of the night. Yeah, well, you know, you've got to lubricate the throats, keep the vocal cords wet. 
Right, right. That's so exactly what, that's... what better than get the stoner out and fill the stoner up. <laughs> it's the best way to do it, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Colin, my, my avian brandy here, it leads us into our topic for tonight, which is the Zindi. And of course, we're going to touch on the six different species, but more specifically, we'll discuss the idea of all these different sentient species evolving on one planet, because it's something that we, we don't really get an explanation for it, it, at least not in terms of biology and, you know, like a scientific explanation. It's a really interesting idea. I don't know how realistic it is, but uh, what what are your initial thoughts on the Zindi? Give everyone a quick overview of the Zindi. Well, I, I particularly thought that the inception of the Zindi as a race uh, was a brilliant idea. Because all too often we know that most civilizations in Star Trek is there's a dominant society, uh, which is normally humanoid, mm-hmm. uh, which which was explained away with the preservers. Uh, but with the unique aspect of the Zindi is you've got reptilians, you've got insectoids, you've got aquatics. And well, we are told that they all evolved on the same planet. A planet called Zindus, which uh, I really want to be a valid word and word with friends. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I keep putting Star Trek words into word with friends and it keeps saying word not valid. So, I know. It um, takes, takes a few I'm very, I'm very disappointed. Yeah. I mean, you know, can't even put gak in. <laughs> I know, I should take that. But but yeah, so all evolving on this one planet. Yeah, and it's it's... You know, the, the evolutionary aspects. I mean, if you, even if you take if you take Earth as a prime example, we know there was other versions of Homo sapien. Uh, current speculation is there was around seven to eight different versions, and we're right. just the one that prevailed. Yeah, but th- that's an interesting point. And and when we get to where we talk about unique evolution, we'll delve more into that. But uh, but that's a good point about here on Earth. Yet the these Zindi are further apart in terms of what what type yeah. of animals they evolved from to develop sentience. So it, it is really quite interesting. But so, yeah, we, so we have these, and then we have the... Yeah, there's uh, the arboreals, the insectoids, the primates, the reptilians, the aquatics, the avians. Yeah, that's right. And of course, the avians are extinct by the time we see the Zindi in Enterprise. So we, we just kind of hear that they once existed, but we don't know much else about them. So, well, why don't we move into, I call these guys the six flavors of Zindi rather than the six species of Zindi. And the reason I'm not, is I'm not that, eating reptilian ice cream. <laughs> right. It's Baskin Robbins. <laughs> the uh, the, the yeah. Zindi flavor of the month is reptilian. It's green. It, uh, yeah. But the, the thing is, so... In a technical sense, and and again, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist, so uh, you know, I'm not. I'm sure I will make mistakes in discussing this topic tonight. In terms of you know anyone who's listening who is a scientist, they'll probably be screaming at the yeah. Uh, Any the, evolutionary scientists or biologists or anthropologists listening will be emailing. Well, I'm sure my friend Athena, who wrote the Athena Andreatis, who wrote the biology of Star Trek, will probably be sending me some messages. <laughs> Yeah, about all the mistakes I make here. Yeah. But before we start Athena, it's not my fault. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's right. So, in a technical sense, the species are they're organisms that are capable of interbreeding with one another to produce fertile offspring. Right. So, 
you get uh, a horse and a donkey and they, they mate and they produce a mule, but a mule's infertile. So, yeah. So these are actually different species. So we don't know if the Zindi can mate with one another or not. You know, I mean, I don't imagine that the insectoids can mate with the aquatics, but maybe the primates and the arboreals can interbreed. You know, we don't know. But so it feels a little weird to use the term species for them because they don't necessarily qualify under this technical definition. But then you can, uh, you know, talk about traits like DNA similarity. And then in that sense, maybe they do, because that's sort of the the idea behind it. So that's why I call them six flavors. But uh, let's talk about the arboreals first. The, these guys, to me, certainly seem like the most passive, the, the pacifists of the group, right? Yeah, they are definitely the, the manana species. They, they are so laid back and so um, willing and open to ideas and stuff compared to some of the other species like the insectoids and reptilians who just want to kill everything. Right. They remind me of sloths, of course, because they are, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're portrayed as they, they would have evolved from, from probably from sloth, sloth-like creatures that, that lived in the trees. They still prefer shelter in the trees from what I understand, but, but they're, but they're, they're the mammals on the planet along with the, the primates and the aquatics, I guess. Yeah, and if you take the episode, uh, the shipment, mm-hmm. uh, the lead, the leader of the settlement says he likes to go wandering in the forest. So, and everywhere you looked around that actual complex, there was loads and loads of trees. Right. I bet he likes to go. You know, we're recording this in December. It's getting close to the holidays. I just picture him in like a Charlie Brown Christmas, where he goes out and he has to like find the Christmas tree. He, he would just be. <laughs> He would be so at home in that 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 light. I just wonder if he would. Pick he definitely same... would be at home. In it, yeah. <laughs> I just wonder if he'd pick it's... the same sad tree as Charlie Brown does. <laughs> well, the reptilians are cheap. The reptilians are just send out them seekers to find the tree. <laughs> right. Yeah. We'll just sit here. They can find the tree. Yeah. So so the arboreals are interesting for sure. Then we have the. Well, if we if we want to stay with the mammals, why don't we jump to the primates real quick? Because the primates are like the human analog, right? I guess yeah. part of, well, the two races that they came up with first were the primates and the reptilians. And then during the break between season two and season three, they fleshed out the rest of the concept of who the Zindi were because they really didn't quite know who they were going to be. Uh, so naturally, there is one flavor let's go back to our flavor term here within the zindi who are analogous to us as humans so that we can deal with them on a more uh even level like we do with other races in star trek typically and so we have the the primates what do you think about these guys well the primates are obviously like you said they're the closest to us and you know the primate that we've seen the most which is uh um you can definitely see where that when I was thinking of the species up, there was you want a humanoid species right. because from a viewer's point of view, it's easier to relate to a humanoid species, and obviously it's cheaper. It is cheaper, yeah. Um, although they certainly didn't spare any expense or effort in in making the insectoids, especially in the, in yeah. season three, yeah. yeah. 
This is what this is one of the interesting things about Enterprise as a series is they they literally could not do this series like 15, 20 years ago. That's the thing, right? Like you think it was kind of odd when the third season of Enterprise came on. It was kind of odd to see these CGI characters in the show. But if you think about it, I'm sure TNG would have had these types of characters. They they might have even had, you know, there was always that desire to have A-Rex. And so in TAS, you have A-Rex. And now every time someone does a comic of TOS, A-Rex is always on the bridge in the comic because they yeah. can draw him. So, you know, you have to imagine that TNG probably would have had, maybe not A-Rex, but would have had CGI characters in it at times if the technology had been at the same level it was for season three of Enterprise. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And then when you get when you get to the end of, of TNG's run and the technology is getting better and better, the aliens that you do see are yeah. far more believable than what you've seen in, in season one. Right. Yeah, definitely. So uh speaking of insectoids, you know, I can't and you're talking about having a humanoid for us to play against i can't picture archer with an insectoid in a shuttle pod trying to get information out from him you know talking about his larvae you know what were their names um i I just don't see that working so you need a humanoid you need you need degra to be humanoid (laughs) yeah and it was like it's also interesting that they, they 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 classed the insectoids as a belligerent race yeah because humans, uh, as a species, are adverse mm-hmm. to insects. Right. You know, arachnophobia is one of the most common phobias. Yeah. Uh, but most people, when they see an insect in a house, they kill it. Yeah. So it was interesting. Though, that I thought that was good that they made them a belligerent race who basically didn't want anything to do with humans at all. It makes sense, yeah, that they would do that. Uh, but both the insectoids and the reptilians, yeah, too. Uh, two types of animals that we typically have fears of, for sure. Uh, the insectoids, though, they were a little bit odd for me in Star Trek, seeing them, just because we had never seen any aliens like that in Star Trek before, to to this extent anyway, where you actually have them coming onto the ship, you have them walking down the corridors in the ship. They're like fully fleshed out villains that mm. are CGI, but they are insects. Um, did it feel odd to you, or did was was it just a cool addition? No, I thought it was. I, I thought it felt like that. I mean, they was they was completely believable in, yeah. in the interactions when they boarded ships and and their firefights and stuff yeah. like that. It was all completely believable. Uh, I think the Achilles heel with insectoids is the twelve year lifespan, <laughs> right? You know, because basically all you got to do is wait twelve years and they're all dead. Well, I think maybe Okampa and Insectoid are two races that could have a life together. You know, you've got the nine-year lifespan of the Okampa. You've got the 12-year lifespan of an Insectoid. If they meet at the right time, it could be, could be a beautiful love story. Yeah. Somehow I can't see Neelix with an Insectoid. <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> that might be creepy too, right? You know, some people think yeah. the whole Neelix uh, Kess thing is kind of Well, creepy, Neelix right? and Kess is definitely creepy, yeah. but yeah, Neelix and any insectoid. This would be uh-huh. creepy in a different way. Um, I'd feel yeah. bad for the insectoid because Neelix would probably end up trying to cook it. But um, no, I was... <laughs> yeah, with Leola Root. With, right, yeah. I was thinking more of a Kess insectoid relationship where, you know, their age, their lifespans would match up pretty well. But... Yeah, 
they would have a lot of income. I mean, obviously they're going to have accelerated growth, yeah. uh, which is, is, is an insectoid trait, uh, a compass or accelerated growth. Plus, um, Ocampus have that sack on their back, right? So that'd be the perfect place for the eggs. For the eggs, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, They're like a spider. The spider stores the young in an egg sack. <laughs> right. Uh, so another interesting thing about the insectoids is that they have 67 dialects. Yeah. And their name, this is interesting too, their names grow longer as they they age. So they're like picking up additions that was also, I thought, I mean, it sounds odd, but it's just kind of a clever addition to Star Trek. It's something that's truly alien. Like, you know, the whole Bajoran last name comes first thing. That's what we do in Japan as well. The last name comes before yeah. the given name in Japan. So the Bajoran thing was completely normal to me. This insectoid thing, though, is that's actually something that's alien. Do you think it's like... um like village elders when they gain titles as they grow older. Mm-hmm. It, it could be something along them lines. So uh, the, the, the more distinguished you are, then the more titles you get added to your name. Right. I, I think that's that's probably what it is. And of course, you only have 12 years to distinguish yourself. So that way... Yes, the, you got to work quick. That's right. And that way the names don't get too long. But <laughs> there, there is that... God, if they live the same lifespan as us, they'd probably take three days just to say this is this is and do the introduction. <laughs> right. Well, the other aggressive species are the reptilians, as we mentioned, and they seem to be like the warriors of the Zindi, right? I mean, the the insectoids get easily a, a, annoyed and they they'll come after you, but if the Zindi as a whole are in danger, the reptilians are the ones that they're going to send out there. Yeah, they are definitely the Klingons of the species. And they all, the, the, the interesting thing with the, the reptilians and the insectoids, though, is, is, is the fact that they share ships. Yeah, yeah. they have. Well, it's like the Klingons and the Romulans. You know, they shared ships as well. Yeah, the D7 battlecruiser, yeah. <laughs> and look how well that worked out. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, I guess it's because they're both belligerent that the insectoids, at least within the group of Zindi, the insectoids and the reptilians is something they have in common. Maybe they can understand each other a little bit better. Uh, and I don't mm. mean by language. I just mean by the way they view the world, the way they view their positions within the society and all. They they seem like natural allies with one another as opposed to being allied with the primates or the arboreals. Yeah, I, c- I couldn't really. I mean, most the most friction is between the primates and the reptilians. Naturally, so it's, yeah. It, which was, yeah, which was interesting because it's the cold-blooded and the warm-blooded. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hu- so, humans and snakes. I mean, we're we're naturally yeah. fearful of snakes, uh, of reptiles. So, uh, so, th- so that made sense for sure. Then we have the aquatics, who I know are your favorite. Oh, yeah, <laughs> the aquatics. They make so much sense. Yeah. A water-based species in s- spaceships. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of odd, right? I mean, I, I completely get that they would make a water-based sentient species because we practically have one here on Earth with dolphins. I mean, and whales are also intelligent, but you could certainly see dolphins here on Earth having developed sentience uh, if they're not already sentient. I mean, we really don't know for sure how, how intelligent dolphins are right now. No. So 
you know, and give them more time, you know, of evolution, especially if they didn't have the pressures on them that, that we put on them, who knows? So, so I totally get having an aquatic species here when you're going to set up this world where like all the different possibilities actually happened. But in spaceships, yeah, it's kind of, it is kind of, um, it's odd because you see them inside their tanks, inside yeah. the spaceships. And yeah. that part is just, it's just kind of strange. Although it's a good thing that they have the aquatics because when they're actually building the weapon, they're building it underwater. Yeah, that's very convenient. <laughs> <laughs> good place what I want to know is when the whale probe, when the whale probe comes through, like, you know, <laughs> this sector of space, why didn't the aquatics go and say hello? Because they would have understood that signal, no problem. Maybe it's like in Star Trek V, where the alien who's pretending to be God says, you know, like, I'm known by many faces. Maybe the whale probe is like that as well. When it came to Earth, it was looking for humpback whales. But when it went to Zendus, it was looking for aquatics. Oh, well, there you go then. Problem <laughs> solved. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, the aquatics are are quite unusual. Uh, you know, one thing I like about Enterprise, which I often talk about here on the show, is the way that they portray language and alien languages. And this is kind of bizarre, but I suppose if you think about how communication uh, is handled underwater, uh, which does happen here on Earth, because it, it is pretty clear, I think, that dolphins and whales both have a complex language, especially dolphins have a complex language. Yeah, yeah, the clicking sounds. That they use uh, with one another. I actually read something recently where they did a lot of studies and they feel that they've determined that dolphins actually have unique names for one another within a group the same way humans do and uh, that was uh, an interesting discovery but it doesn't really surprise me yeah that's fascinating yeah but in terms of language here with the aquatics it's interesting that they say that when they use the past tense they switch to sonar yeah so basically humpback whales are always talking about the past <laughs> right i was trying to picture like how would that how would that work so uh, you know, t tenses are, are really interesting things to me in language anyway, because in Japanese, we don't really have a future tense in the same way that English has a future tense. And so it's interesting oh, when you talk about things uh, and that tense that's analogous to the English one isn't there. And so then I'm picturing, you know, these aquatics when they switch tenses and they're actually, you know, switching the entire way that they uh, communicate. Quite interesting. So, um, and then lastly, there's the race that we don't know very much about because we didn't get to see them, the avians. Yeah. And we've seen a skull and we see pictures, but that's, that's it. That's it. But there's a story about them though. Yeah. They, they was mentioned in the shipment and the council, uh, in the shipment, the sleuths for want of a better word, uh, tell Archer that they once darkened the skies of Zindus. So, but obviously they weren't the sharpest tools in the box because when the planet blew up, they went with it. Right. It is kind of odd, right, that the story is that the avians lacked sufficient technology to get themselves off the planet, which makes me wonder, like, would one of the other races maybe help evacuate them? It also makes me wonder why um, the... 
the story about the Guardians like feeding technology to the Zindi so they could develop space travel. And and that actually reminded me a little bit of how Vulcans were with humans, right? Because the Guardians were kind of like yeah. feeding them information bit by bit, but not just giving them the technology outright. But what? why are the avians left out of this? Yeah, the, the other thing with that is, is we know there was a 100-year civil war, which is why their planet got destroyed. Yeah. And in the Civil War, people form alliances, they make sides. Uh, you know, we, we've established that the insectoids and reptilians were, were a faction. You can probably hypothesize that the Arboreals and the Mobilians were a faction. Yeah. So you would think someone would have allied with the avians, given the fact that this isn't a, a creature that can fly right. of its own accord. Yeah. That would be a tactical advantage. But no one seemed that, you know, when the planet was destroyed, no one thought maybe we should take some with us. Right. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, it, kind of odd. It, it really makes you wish that the history of the Zidney was fleshed out more. Right. Yeah. The, the only thing I can think of with the Avians is that was the ones that rejected the Guardians. Right. Well, that's the thing probably. So the Guardians didn't want to give them anything. But, but still... You you would think that as technology is developing around the planet, that if they are also sentient, and apparently just my reading of it, more or less on the same level, because all these different flavors of Zindi, as I was calling them earlier, they all seem to be sentient on the same level. Like they're yeah. socially and technologically, they are just right on par with one another, which would imply, of course, some exchange of information. Uh, you would think that the avians would at least be able to pick that up, even if the guardians were were giving them the cold shoulder. Yeah, I mean, even if you use Earth now with the internet, yeah, something can be invented in Japan, for instance, and then someone in America can log onto the internet and see that invention. Right, like the like the robots that I saw fighting on TV tonight. <laughs> I'm so gonna change my TV settings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they actually had this. They built robots and then had them fight each other. Oh, that is cool. Yeah, all we've got is so-called celebrities eating insects in the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, well, here we'll probably have robots eating insects in the jungle. Yeah, uh, soon. So, but yeah, right. I mean, information spreads uh, very easily. Is the point? You know, this is actually talking about the Civil War. I think is a good transition to the the major point that we want to talk about which is is it even possible to have a planet like this where you have six distinct species who evolve sentience on a single planet first of all that's that's question number one question number two they evolve sentience and they all evolve like the same pace so they're right on par with one another that's another question and then another question i have is Supposing this happened, what are the the odds? Well, and I guess the fact that there's a civil war sort of answers this question, but what are the odds that they would be able to coexist with one another on the same planet? Because even though they had a civil war, we have wars going on here on Earth all the time, and we we really are the same species. You know, we are just one homogenous species with a few, you know, slight variations here and there as you go around the world and we can't get along so how would how would these six species and well 
It is six because the avians were, they went extinct when Zendis was destroyed itself. So prior to that, six species living on this one world together, getting along well enough that they could continue to evolve to the point where they had space travel. I is, what do you think about that? Well, the way that I look at it is uh, if you take two countries as an example, the first one would be Australia mm-hmm. and the second one would be uh, Japan. Now, to take Japan as an example, Japan is a collection of islands that we that we class as Japan. Mm-hmm. So everyone sees Japan as one thing, but it's really it's a collection of islands. Except for China, you, who class it as part China. But yeah, okay, go on. Yeah. <laughs> China, China classes the world as China. <laughs> right. So... <laughs> Yeah, and if, especially when there's gas and oil involved. Yes, but <laughs> but if you if you then took them islands and you put them on a planetary scale on the, on a planet the size of Earth, then you can feed in the Australian characteristic, whereby Australia was a landmass that has unique species that you're not found anywhere else on the planet. So if you was to put these individual species on landmasses. Uh, that were so far apart that going from one to the other in the boat wouldn't have been realistic, then yes, they could have evolved uh, roughly at the same pace, but independent of each other. Yeah. Until their technology reached a point where they could interact with each other, but by then evolution had already started its track. Right. You know, that's another thing we don't know about this world's Zendus, at least I don't think we do, is we don't know how large it was. Because... No, know, we just know it was Class N. Right, we know it was Class M. And now I think the fact that it's Class M does restrict how large it can be and still have the, the type of environment that we would call Class M. But Earth is a pretty small planet, so you can actually go a good bit larger than Earth. I um, I should know this, actually, because I, I read a lot about this stuff, but uh, I want to say you could at least double the size of Earth and still have an environment that's what we would classifies class M. Yeah, they, that the uh, the planet hunters found uh, one in the Goldilocks zone mm-hmm. uh, beginning of the year. I think Giselle um I can't think of the number. I think it was Giselle something and it was literally twice the size of Earth. Right. That I, that might be what I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah. But so it was in the Goldilocks zone. Yeah. So if you think of a planet that's twice the size of Earth, think about historically how long it took us to to develop the technology to be able to traverse the oceans and how long that took even once we were able to traverse the oceans. And if you think about a planet that's twice the size of Earth, you really could have species that could evolve in their own little niches on this planet and never come in contact with anyone else for hundreds or thousands of years. I think it would be possible. The only reason humans spread out is because they had all the land bridges. Yeah. That's the only reason we could spread out so quickly. But if, if you take some of the isolated communities like Australia, uh, where obviously humans evolved to, and then as, as the ocean rose, Australia got cut off, and you take the, the Aborigines, they have evolved slightly different to other humanoids. Mm-hmm. And then and then if you factor in like you know like like we said earlier that the, the subtle differences between humans, you know like. Uh, Western Europeans have white skin because they don't need the protection from the sun. So whereas you go down to the southern areas, then there's darker skin, hair color changes, you know, and that's just one species. Yeah. You know, and then you you do that on a planetary scale with lots of different species, then that just magnifies it. 
Right. What what I find interesting too, though, is that so on on Earth, we are no matter where people are, like we all have, at least we think we all have a single origin. You know, I have read some cases where they think there might be two origins, but uh, I, I tend to think there's a one single origin. And then we spread. Now, of course, if we talk about the Neanderthals, which is actually important for this discussion, and you mentioned earlier the various different hominid species that were on Earth at one point in time, there could have been some different uh, origins. But for Homo sapiens, sapiens as we are, then, yeah, a single origin where what we're talking about here on Zendus would be, like, I think, truly independent origins. Well, it would have to be because we're talking about primates, we're talking about arboreals, which those two, I don't know, maybe there could be some, like I said, interbreeding at some point. But the insectoids would have to be completely independent, the reptilians completely independent, the aquatics completely independent as well. Now, the avians are interesting because we know here on Earth now that the birds that we have today are descendants of dinosaurs. Yeah. So yeah. there could be some connection between the reptilian origin and the avian origin within the Zindi. Yeah. And they, even even taking the aquatic scene, they would have no reason to interact right. with land-based creatures. And no desire, so even though, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, or the desire, yeah. Because, you know, why, why would they need to? But it's, it's also interesting that they all have one common feature, though, which is this vent in the cheek. Yeah. So that's obviously a characteristic of the planet itself, uh, much like humans now have an appendix yeah. that we don't need. Mm-hmm. So that that's an interesting, why would you need a vent in your cheek? Right, yeah. So there there is some, it served some purpose at some point in the history of the planet, right, for the environment. Because yeah. that's the other thing is that they all had to evolve within the same environment. Maybe some variations in temperature, some variations in other uh, conditions of the land, of course, the ocean. But ultimately, they evolved in the same environment on this one yeah. planet. Uh, you know, I was thinking about the whole species thing also. And w- what would aliens think about us? Because uh, I was actually reading somewhere, some fans were discussing the Zindi and... It was on some site, and they were uh, talking about, are the Zindi one species, or are they six species? And within Enterprise, they're kind of presented like the Zindi are one species, because they all come from this one world. But then they talk about six different Zindi. And I was wondering what, like, what would aliens think about us, because, you know, we ourselves, we share, you know, 96 to 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees, but we don't consider ourselves to be the same as chimpanzees. And then just amongst ourselves as humans, about it's like 0.5% of our DNA may vary from you know person to person, which which is kind of a lot if you think if it's between a chimpanzee and a human, 98% and 100%, and then you've got 0.5% variation within humans. That's kind of a lot. And even with with cats, like humans and cats, our genes are 90% homologous. And we certainly don't see ourselves in any way the same as cats. <laughs> but that's a lot of similarity in DNA, obviously, because we 
both evolved on this same planet right here. So it, it did make me wonder, like, if, if aliens were viewing life on Earth, uh, especially if, like, let's say some aliens knew how to communicate with dolphins, and it turns out the dolphins are just as intelligent as they are in Douglas Adams's Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> trilogy, and aliens could communicate with them, would they would they see humans and dolphins as being essentially the same? Because we we both come from Earth and we're both intelligent. Well, you could factor that forward um, to say a million years from now when humans have ceased to exist. Yeah, and aliens land on Earth and they they find right. DNA samples. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, would they, then, would they then view everything as a common species? Yeah, who this knows? Is DNA characteristics that are shared. Right. So, so my my assumption would be any aliens that are technologically advanced enough to come to Earth and find that would have a very sophisticated classification system, and they would break everything down kind of the way we do right now when we look at our uh, DNA records, fossil records, and and such. Uh, but just for the sake of just for a discussion here, because of the way that we view the Zindi, it does make you you wonder, right? How would you group those things? Yeah, um, I mean, a common a common theme uh, that humans share is language. We all we all speak using the same right. vocal cords, the same voice box. We use different words, mm-hmm. but we all use the same tools. So obviously, uh, the insectoids wouldn't use the same tools as the reptilians, but they all evolved language. Right. In fact, the primates, the reptilians, and the arboreals all use the same language. And then the aquatics and the insectoids can understand that language, but they can't speak it because they're not able to produce the language. Yeah, yeah. And then there's the other thing when the insectoids talk that they can understand it, but the universal translator can't. Yeah. Language is an interesting th- thing too when you talk about evolution and like a geographic isolation because, you know, there are so many languages here on Earth, uh, very, very vibrant languages even today. Of course, there are many, many dead languages, but if you look at European languages, they're for the most part very similar because they have very common roots, very common uh, ancestors, and and they're within the same families. Um, You know, I don't know if if you feel this way, Colin, but for me, like I've had a lot of friends who speak German and that I actually lived with in university, and I've always found German to be a language where if I don't actually listen to the words, if I just let it wash over me, the, the cadence is so similar to English because obviously the two languages are so closely related to one another. But it's just, it's like so close. But then you take Japanese here, we're like literally on an island by ourselves. I mean, Japanese is, it's a, a Japonic language. There's like, it's a mystery as to how this language developed and what it's related to. Just as the yeah, island is isolated. Like it. it's, it's like one of the very few languages in the world that really seems to not be related to much of anything. Even though we, we took a writing system from, from China, the actual spoken language is different. And, and but, but yet you've got things like Korean, and Turkish, which are related to each other as they as they spread across the the planet as people migrate, but but so the the, the language evolution is interesting to me uh, as well, and I'm glad that Enterprise played up on that. Yeah, and there's only a few languages that we go through in in Star Trek in general. 
mm-hmm. where the universal translator just can't cope. Right. You know, uh, can is one of them because they're speaking metaphors. He understood the word, but he can't understand the sentence structure. Mm-hmm. Insectoid is also one of the very few languages that the universal translator can't translate. Uh, we had Darmak, where they're speaking metaphors, so he can understand the, the words, but he can't understand the sentence structure. Uh-huh. Uh, and when you go to Voyager, you've got the Voth, yeah. who also speak in cliques. And don't forget TNG, you have the Gerada, who are also insects. And yes. Picard has to learn that really complicated thing that he has to say to them because he, he has to... I don't know, was it was it, was it the case with the Gerada that the Universal Translator just wouldn't work or they would just be really insulted because the Gerada get insulted really easily. They would be insulted if you didn't actually do it yourself. I think, I think it was the, the, the tone. Yeah. It was the Universal Translator wouldn't get the tone. So it had to be done by a a, a living thing, yeah. shall we say. Poor Picard. He had to he had to do that insect tone. He had to wear that wig in insurrection. <laughs> but he still didn't have it as bad as Archer because Archer had to braid his hair and chainsaw a tree. Yeah, that was that yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is that is another weird moment from, from Enterprise whereby <laughs> Because Porthos did what dogs do on a tree, and you therefore have to cut another tree down to apologize for the other tree getting wet. That's right. Which was very, very bizarre. Very, very bizarre. It is really bizarre. Um, Although, you know, fair play to Porthos, you know, Strange New World, first thing he did was run out the shutter pop straight for a tree. Well, he's a dog. What do you think he's going to do? Yeah. Exactly, an you architect know? into a planet that's got loads of trees, and and then dogs well, do what dogs do. Well, plus it's a <laughs> it's a new planet, and he runs over there and he sniffs it, and he says, "I don't know that dog that was here before me." So obviously, he's going to mark it. Yeah, I mean, and in Strange New World, he was literally the only dog, right? So he had a lot of he had a lot of trees to get through, which makes me wonder if the rock people came out to sniff. Uh, no, wait a minute, those were all imagined. Yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe it was maybe it was all the ammonia from Porthos doing all the trees that made him see things. Oh, it could be that's what was causing the yeah. hallucinations, right? Well, back to the Zindi here. You mentioned the Voth, and the Voth is interesting in the context of this discussion as well, because the Voth, and for those who don't know who the Voth are, they are sentient dinosaurs who evolved on Earth, who left Earth. And made it to the Delta Quadrant, and then Voyager encounters them. And uh, and I know it sounds kind of dumb, but it's actually a really good episode. But the Voth evolved on Earth, and humans evolved on Earth. So this is a case where would you consider the Voth and humans the same species? Because that's actually exactly analogous to what we're talking about with the Zindi. You would, yeah, you would class them both as Earthlings. Yeah. So, like, we class all the these races, like the six flavors, we class all the six flavors as Zindi. So, yeah, you would class the Voth and humans as Earthlings because it's it's your country. It's your. It's like, um, my parents are Irish, so uh, characteristically uh, and genetically, I could say I'm Irish, but because I'm I'm 
I live in England and yeah, you know, I've lived there since I was like one year old. I class myself as English. So then you're doing that. So although the, for once of a better word, the Irish species living in England, you're still earthlings. So the Vaf, although they, they, they live on spaceships the size of small planets, their origins would be Earth. So they would be classed as earthlings. So you could say my parents are humans, but I've lived on the Voth homeworld since I was one. So I see myself as Voth. Yeah, it's it's like where it's like you class yourself as as where, where you are. It's like people who emigrate. Um, no, it's true. You want, to you want to integrate with the society that you emigrate into, and then become, you know, American or you know, if you're one of them people who go up north and become Canadian. Don't know why. But um if you did that or you like you've you've gone to Japan, if if I went if I went to Australia, you know, then you either absorb that culture and become what that culture is, or you cling to your old culture. Yeah. And forevermore be an Englishman. Well it's completely true. You know, I mean I'm I am American. I was born in the US and I grew up there, but I you know, really see myself more as Japanese at this point because I've been here so long and my whole life is here and that's what I identify with. So yeah, most definitely. So so the Voth were interesting that there was a precedent for this in Star Trek even before we got to the Zindi arc. Yeah, because that was in, uh, intelligent, advanced reptiles, basically. Yeah. So I, I guess what we're coming to here is that we we think that the possibility of these six species evolving on a single world is legitimate, uh, at least yeah. theoretically. Now, again, biologically, I don't know. I actually have to ask Athena about this sometime, and and well, see I mean, you, if you take if you take us uh, when when Homo sapiens moved into northern Europe, the Androphiles were there. So if we hadn't moved into northern Europe. Would the Yandafals would have carried on, and then there would have been two humanoid species on Earth. And if we didn't interact for a few thousand years, we would have been more or less the same level technology, perhaps. You know, uh, if 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 the comet hadn't hit in uh, South America, would the dinosaurs have turned out to be the reptilians? So there is precedence there. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is sort of the, the, it's the progression of distant origin on Voyager, right? That's what the, yeah. with enough time, the dinosaurs would have evolved that way. And, you know, I mean, I can, I can certainly see if you, if you doubled the size of the earth so that we could have never come in contact with the Neanderthals, then yeah, you know, maybe I think it's very, very legitimate that you would see that. And given enough time, I think you could see uh, dolphins yeah. being like aquatics. Um, I don't know who would turn into the insectoids, but um, at least I could see two humanoid species and an aquatic species on Earth. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. And the, and the aquatics. Uh, you know, Robert J. Sawyer wrote a, an interesting book series where the Neanderthals became the dominant species. Uh, there's a book called Hominids. Oh. Hominids is the first book. And then he wrote a book called Humans which tells the story from the flip side. And then he wrote a 
book called Hybrids, which is where they they come together. But it was like a different. It's like alternate uh, universes, basically, where in one we evolved as we did, and in the other, Neanderthal evolved as they did, and then something happens in the lab, and you get a crossover thing going. But it's it's a pretty interesting story. Oh, we'll have to look that up. I like that. That sounds like Philip K. Dick when he writes alternative universes and that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I guess the other question of, do, do you think if here on Earth, we evolved, Neanderthal evolved, and we're far enough apart that for thousands of years, we can't come in contact because the planet is so large, but eventually we're going to develop technology that allows us to traverse the planet and we're going to come in contact, which is what happened with the Zindi here. Uh, would we be able to coexist peacefully? And do you buy the idea that the Zindi coexisted long enough to reach the point where they could escape their planet when they themselves destroyed it in a war? Homo sapiens quite happily kill Homo sapiens. Yeah. And have done for thousands of years. Uh, I actually had this discussion the other day with someone. Um, you take the Roman Empire, 2,000 years ago, people were paying to go to the Colosseum to watch people beat each other up. Right. 2,000 years later, people paid to watch cage fighters beat each other up. Yeah. The only difference between us and them is we've got technology. The basic human traits and instincts are exactly the same. Yeah. So I think if we had come into contact with Neanderthals, there probably would have been a period of coexistence but inevitably it would have been one of us needs to be the dominant species. Yeah. Uh, it's not to say that we would have wiped them out, but I think we would have subjugated them. Yeah, that that's the thing. And that's the thing with the Zindi is that I feel like the natural progression would be that ultimately there would have to be one dominant species. Mm. And... Now, you could say that's what the Zindi Civil War was about, you know, that each species wanted to be the dominant species. But again, what I keep coming back to is the fact that they had to coexist for so long before they reached that century-long civil war. And that's the part that I just have trouble with that with, with yeah. th- th- that would have been I mean, possible. You, yeah. you, just, you just take England. Uh, it's, it's a little island off the coast of Europe. And for thousands of years, people have been fighting to control this little island. You know, the Romans conquered it, uh, the Normans conquered it, the the Saxons conquered it, the Vikings had a go at it. The Beatles conquered it. The Beatles conquered it, yeah. Yeah. And all the damage that did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And that's just one little island. And all them people have been trying to conquer it for thousands of years. So. This, this is the problem with the thing. That, and you know, to have a faction like the insectoids and the reptilians, which are definitely warmongers, I can't see them finding the arboreals with their laid-back approach and thinking, yeah, let's be friends. Right. They would just, just go... That wouldn't have happened. They would just slaughter them, I think. Yeah, yeah. they'd just roll over them. Yeah. You know? Right. All right, well... What are your final thoughts on the Zindi as far as um, what we've talked about here and then what they uh, prov- what they gave to Enterprise and gave to Star Trek? 
I, I think the concept is in the uh, what, uh, what Brown and Bragger and, and, and Berman came up with was a, a brilliant concept. Uh, let's throw the rule book out the window and say, what happened if X, Y, Z happened? Right. Yeah. And I, I think that was a brilliant uh, leap to make, especially given, like, you know, most of us know that most humanoid races in Star Trek are down to the preservers. Yeah. So we know that. And I think that was a brilliant leap. Yeah. Uh, what they gave to Enterprise was a different way of looking at things. And it also gave us a chance to see Archer in a completely different light. Uh, which when you're watching season four, you've got to reflect on what he's done in season three. And I think it takes the character of Archer uh, and the crew in general in some ways to a completely different places. Yeah. Which some people don't like and some people do because some people think that it made Archer too dark and angry. Uh, I, I think it made yeah. him grow up to the realities of of life in the universe, personally. Yeah. And I've I've had this discussion with people, and it's just like, you know, I could see Kirk doing what Archer did. Oh yeah, whatever whatever it took to save Earth, Kirk would have done. Well, I could see Picard doing it as well, even though he normally is is very diplomatic and very measured in his approach to things. I mean, if you push him to that point, I could see that too. Yeah, yeah, and of course, Cisco I mean, would even, do even it. Arch, even Archer would in. Um, just when he when he takes the warp drive off that ship, yeah. knowing it's going to strand him three yeah. years from home, but and then later on in the series when he actually gets contact uh, and he thinks, "Hang on, maybe we can do this without, like you know, wiping him out." Uh, you know, like like the, the episode of the shipments where Reed just wants to orbitable bombard him, or let's plant some charges and kill them all. But I just know, let's talk. Right. So it's it's Archer's it's we get to see so many sides of Archer because of the Zindu story arc. Yeah, it rounded out his character. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree with you in that it 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 doesn't all make sense, first of all, but I think that's okay. I mean I, I think sometimes as fans like we want everything to make sense. Uh, again, I read someone that said that Enterprise has to take place in an alternate timeline because no one ever mentioned the NX-01 in the original series or the next generation or anything else. And and I thought, well, you, you can't really hold the writers to that. You know, you have to, you have to be able yourself as a viewer to put that stuff into context when it's created later on, because, mm. you know, it's, you're creating a whole franchise here. And so, I don't think that everything has to make perfect sense in order for us to enjoy it or to be able to appreciate it as an SF concept. And I think that it's it's really interesting here, the idea, what if, like you said, what if there was a planet where every possible trajectory from, you know, uh, insects or, or sloths or whatever they all evolve sentience. What if that happened? What would, what would it be like? And maybe they could have made sense of it if that had been the focus of the season as opposed to the focus being on finding a weapon so that Earth isn't destroyed. And and so unfortunately, 
we don't get to delve into the whole concept of the Zindi as much as maybe we would like to. But it doesn't mean it's not an interesting idea. Here's one other thing I was thinking about, Colin. And tell me what, what you think about this. Now, season three was largely taking what happened to the U.S. and the world in the 9-11 attacks and putting it into science fiction wrappings. And one thing I see here that's interesting is that at first you think that, you know, Starfleet humans, we're the United States in the situation and we're going out and we're finding the people who carried out this attack and those people are the Zindi. But on the flip side, you can also look at the Zindi as being us because with the Zindi, you have all these different people who they they have different ways of seeing the world, they have different agendas, but they come together in the face of a threat. To them, we're the threat. Earth is the threat because the sphere builders have told them that Earth is going to destroy their world. And I kind of see the five species of Zindi who are still alive as being like the United States and England and, you know, Russia or everyone who came together to say, you know, this attack was wrong and the the world cannot stand for something like this. So whether, you know, not everyone helped out militarily, but everyone felt sympathetic. And you can almost see the Zindi as being us in that situation where it is the diversity of the world coming together against a threat. And And I don't know if that's what Brandon and Rick were going for in some of the writing, but it is one way that you can read the Zindi. It's interesting that you make that point because there's six species of the Zindi and the UN Security Council has six permanent members. Yeah. So that's, you know, if you want to like really, really try to read into the the season, if you want to read the 9-11 analogies in there, I, I do think that is one way to go. One possible, Definitely, yeah. One possible way. And it was also when the when the beam attacked Earth, it cut through Florida. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a good analogy, yeah. Well, well, this has been a fascinating discussion, actually, Colin, about about the Zindi and the possible parallels there, and of course, you know how it corresponds to evolution here on Earth and and such. But we've been talking about all kinds of other stuff on the network this week as well. So uh, for everyone listening, here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. Rewriting TOS Season 1 with Mark Krishman. This is a show that was an excellent show, let's face it. It was, I think, one of the best shows ever made. Certainly the best show at that time. I think the best written show. Uh, because Gene Roddenberry was so determined that every episode would have a, a strong theme and make a statement. Earl Grey. TNG Season 8. Or, or no, this is it. The Traveler is a Q, and so the Traveler shows up with Wesley, Q shows up and like, Q, what are you doing here? I go by T now. The Orb. Cisco as Captain versus Commander. I mean, with the war and everything going on, there's a part of him that's really hardened. But at the same time, yeah. when it comes to the people that are around him, whether it's uh, Cassidy, which, you know, the idea that he would forgive Cassidy, I wouldn't see him doing that in the first few seasons. The Ready Room. Ready. But the ending of the episode is Data flashing a flashlight. 
And I think that's kind of a lame ending. I just wanted to bring you. Up. You wanted to say the end of the episode was data flashing people on the bridge. <laughs> I know. That's also part of Daniel's fanfic number 58. To the journey! The 37's commentary. I had a dream the other day where I met Robert Beltran in a Macy's. And I like totally geek out on him, but I try to say like, oh no, I totally have also know you from your Hispanic and Native American plays. And uh, like I was trying to like BS my way through saying I only know you from Star Trek Voyager. Did it work? Uh, I woke up. Warp 5. Horror on Enterprise. It's not just losing control of yourself. It's the fact that, that zombies, even zombie Vulcans cannot be reasoned with. Some would say that normal Vulcans can't be reasoned <laughs> with, Kate. Commentary, Trek stars. Harlan Ellison recap. Well, I also think it's entirely possible that Harlan Ellison has encountered a lot of people ripping off his stuff because he's actually a prophet. And he just saw the future and thought, that's a good idea for an Outer Limits episode. Literary Treks. Q and Trelane Comics. Kirk is actually doing the the hands thing that he does, you know, where he's 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 trying to make a point with his hands. <laughs> yeah, that's right. He's actually doing it in the comic. It's <laughs> fantastic. It feels just like Kirk. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, or you can download or stream from the website. All right, Colin, uh, we had some feedback since the last time Kate and I recorded a show here. And I'll be interested to get your thoughts on the feedback here real quick. This is from Daniel Noah in California. And Daniel wrote in following probably the show we did where we talked about the temporal Cold War. And Daniel says, so I loved your show and I started watching Enterprise when it first aired in 2001 when I was 15. And uh, that certainly makes me feel old, Colin. But <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> right? <It's> a puppy? <laughs> <laughs> but Daniel says, having been a TOS fan and a movie fan, not so much other modern Trek, Enterprise was a breath of fresh air to me for a number of reasons. Um, and that's something I hear from a lot of people, actually, that there are a lot of Enterprise fans who aren't really into the other Star Trek series. Yeah, it's uh, they are kind of unique. Yeah, they are. Uh, but interestingly here, Daniel said that you guys seem really hard on the third and fourth seasons, and Manny Koto, who Brandon Braga has repeatedly praised... Um, he says, I'm specifically writing about the temporal Cold War. Um, I don't, I don't know, Daniel, I, I, I'm not sure if you've listened to all the shows of Warp 5. And if you have, and we came across that way, I don't think that's really the case of our feeling. Um, now it is true. I think that both Kate and I like season one and two a little bit better than we like season three and four. Uh, but the position that I'm coming from anyway in that is that I'm just looking at it as television writing. I'm not looking at it as much as a TOS prequel. Uh, if you look at it as a TOS prequel, then yeah, I mean, season four and what Manny Koto did is is the best work in terms of leading us towards the original series. So so that was kind of interesting. But, uh, but Colin, about the Temporal Cold War, Daniel said the Temporal Cold War was very unpopular when Enterprise aired. Uh, as much as I enjoyed it, but it barely plays into season two and after season one had very little interest. 
But regarding the sphere builders, you seem to have forgotten the expanse, where Future Guy tells Archer that the Zindi have guiders from the future. So the sphere builders are set up from jump. They are not an afterthought. So here, Daniel is talking about Colin when we said that we felt like the sphere builders were a bit of an afterthought. And my feeling on it was that I, I didn't really mean that the sphere builders, in terms of they exist, are completely an afterthought. I just felt that the way that they were worked into the story, the way that they themselves, when we actually get to see them, were worked into the story, felt like it came too late in the season. And so it didn't have the impact on me that I think it needed to have. What do you think about that? Well, the, the thing with Future Guy is uh, Berman himself admitted that they made a mistake with Future Guy, which is why they got rid of him. In regards to the Sphere Builders, there's, I presume he's, he's alluding to the, to the X-Spies when they, they pulled the pod onto the ship and open it up and there's a Zindi inside. That's one that we talked about, but, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. although at the time, obviously, we didn't know it was a Zindi. Yeah. Um, but Brannon and Berman have actually said themselves that in that episode, they weren't sure what they was going to do. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if the people writing the series weren't sure what they were going to do, then it, you can't exactly expect the fans to have a, a leap when yeah. there's nowhere to leap to. Yeah. So, but I don't think I don't think you and Kate have been particularly hard, to be honest. I don't think so. And I mean, honestly, I'm kind of a defender of season three now. Now, I didn't like season three when it came on television and I watched it in first run. I mean, I didn't hate it or anything, but it wasn't my, it felt weird. It didn't feel like Star Trek to me as much mm. because... Well, for one thing, it felt like a ratings gimmick at the time because you knew that the series was in trouble and then they came up with this and it felt like that. But but recently when I did one of my rewatches of Enterprise, I watched uh, well, I watched the whole series, all four seasons over the course of like uh, three weeks or less. It was really quick. And so I watched season three over the course of a, of a few days, maybe like four days or something like that. And season three actually works quite well if you watch it the way that most of us watch television or a lot of us watch television these days with kind of binge watching where we'll watch like three or four episodes of something in a day. Uh, it works quite well. I think it's, it's a nice uh, exercise in creativity and, and it works within itself. Um, and as for season four, um, Daniel says, this is also why season four is so important. This is when they actually start doing historic stuff, which yes, is absolutely true. That's when, of course they brought, Judith and, and Garion to to help write and yeah. and you know they've written some of the of the absolute best Star Trek novels and so they were uh, excellent along with Manny Koto and and everyone else who was working on the series there to to lead us into TOS uh, but Daniel says this is why the temporal stuff had to finish Cody's sentiment was that our characters needed to start doing stuff in their own time because of who they are not because of Daniel's he had to actually start founding the Federation. Episodes like Babel 1 set up the future while also being awesome stories. The Borderland trilogy, while giving us the Orions, also gives us more insight into Earth culture and politics than anything in Season 1. And yeah, absolutely, I agree with you, Daniel. Uh, that's why with Season 1, I'm looking at it as a, as television writing, not as a prequel, because you're absolutely right that Season 4 gives us far more. But Manny, Manny, 
Manikoto didn't suddenly appear. Manikoto was there right. behind the scenes. But he, but in season four, Manny was able, he had control at that point. You know, he could say, this is the direction yeah, I'm going to take Yeah, he was a showrunner, show yeah. Yeah, so, so that's the thing there. So, so yeah, I think, Daniel, you make some really great points. Uh, I, I, I don't, I think maybe we're coming across a little bit differently than we feel in terms, if you feel like we're hard on season three and four. Um, I've said before that I feel like Enterprise is three different shows. There's season one and two, that's one show. Season three is another show. And season four is yet another show. Yeah. And Manny Koto himself actually said that um, there was a plan to do another uh, series arc in season four. But what they went with instead was the two and three episode. Yeah. which i love i i love the way they did season four. yeah yeah so and and i mean the fact that like you know you gotta remember uh daniel that a lot of time uh how many times spock wiped kirk's memory so <laughs> yeah. kirk kirk might have come into contact with loads of people and just doesn't remember yeah he just doesn't remember you know that's right because i mean when kirk fell in love Kirk, uh, spock wiped his memory that's right <sighs> a lot but, of people would like that gift <laughs> right but I like the, the the three story arcs very much. You know, of course, DS Nine is is my favorite series. I love the serialization, and and I like that Enterprise had an element of that serialization in it, uh, even outside of season three. But but I really like those three story arcs that they that they do. I, I yeah. think it's a nice way of telling a story. The biggest criticism I've heard from uh, from Trek News and Views and from other podcasts I've done is the biggest criticism people have with season three is. Uh, the Zindi had such a massive effect on Earth. Yeah, and there's no history of it. Yeah. There's no history of them. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I think you have to kind of figure out for yourself how you work that into the timeline. But yeah. at the same time, I think you have to give the writers the freedom to do stuff like that just because... Oh, totally. I mean, I, I have no problem with the Romulans popping up yeah. in, in Enterprise and, and already having cloaking technology. Right. I have no problem with that because, you know, the United States now has, has planes that can fly across the planet that no one can see. Right. So it, It's only the Ferengi who we have a problem with popping up on Enterprise, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Little green man. So. All right. All right. Well, uh, but Daniel, thanks so much for your message. We really appreciate the feedback. And for everyone else, if you'd like to share your thoughts with us, you can do that by going to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Just choose Warp 5. Well, choose to send to a show and then choose Warp 5, and that'll come to us by email. You can also send us a voicemail through the website. You can go to our forums at trek.fm forums to talk to us and other listeners about the show and about Enterprise. And then in social media, you'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm and on Twitter, where we're always tweeting away about Star Trek under username trek.fm. Now, Colin, when you're not uh, you know up there in the abandoned caves searching for some bottles of avian brandy for yourself where can people find you uh you can follow me on twitter at c-o-l-m-h-0-1 excellent very good and of course uh, launching very soon is your your new show here on the network melodic treks where we'll be talking about yes. the music of star trek yes uh the we'll be delving into the much like this show we'll be delving into the minutiae of the music how the, the actual individual music came into being. Um, and we'll also be exploring some of the scores, what other people like about music. We'll, we, anything music-based to do with Star Trek, basically. 
yeah, it's it's going to be a fun show. And as some listeners know, I'm actually a musician and, and played professionally for a long time. And so I'm I'm really looking forward to that show and hoping maybe I'll get to sit in with you from time to time. Yeah. I found, I found out uh, the TNG theme tune played on a trombone. <laughs> so. Maybe I'll do that on one of the shows. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I hope everyone else is as well. Not the trombone part, but but the show itself that you're going to be doing. So um, if you'd like to find me, you can find me on Twitter as well. My username is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username, as well as on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And I do write a little bit about Star Trek over there, as well as I'm doing rewatches and such. And uh, elsewhere on the network, you could find me on quite a few shows. I do two shows with Matthew Rushing. The first one is Literary Treks, where we talk about Star Trek books and comics, and we interview authors as well. And Matthew and I also do The Orb together, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine, just like we talk about Enterprise Zero and Warp 5. And you'll also find me on my interview show, Matter Stream, where I talk to scientists and writers and actors and creatives and all sorts of people about topics loosely associated with Star Trek. And then I'm on the big show, The Ready Room, every week where I'm joined by hosts from all across the network and special guests from around the world of Star Trek as we talk about Star Trek news and also about all five live action Star Trek series. So check out all of those shows if you have a chance. Also, Colin, before we let everyone go, we'd like to ask you to please support our sponsor for this week's show. Your support of our sponsor is very important for helping us bring Warp 5 to you every week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read, but never thought you'd have time for. Audible is the premier source for audiobooks. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from on the site right now, and they add new books every week. And Colin, I've been a member of Audible for 14 years. Can you believe that? No, I'll, <laughs> I'll use, I do use Audible, but not for 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. It used to get me through my commutes uh, back in the day here in Tokyo. I, I used to commute four and a half hours round trip every day to go to work. And uh, Audible right. was was really important. This was the before iPods even. I had like the little creative a digital audio player. Oh, you had the creative player. Yeah, I had that. Yeah, and so I, uh, I had one. Though. I had a few things. I had that. I had a um, uh, pocket PC as well. The old um, ran some wow. version of Windows, and and you could put stuff on there. But yeah, Audible really, really helped me keep my sanity back in the day, and and I still use them even to this day. They have just lots of classics on there. They have current bestsellers. They have lots of Star Trek books. Uh, you know, I mentioned Judith and Gar when we were talking a minute ago. They have Prime Directive. And a Federation on there. Federation is one of, of yeah. Judith and Garfield, Reeve Stevens' best if, books. If people if people listen to your recent Matter stream, they can find out that Armin Shimmerman is on Audible. He is, yes. Uh, narrating a couple of books there, a couple of the DS9 books. So, um, you know, ch- check it out and, and help us keep the show coming to you. As a Trek of Film listener, you can get a free audio book of your choice. So you can choose any Star Trek book or even non-Star Trek book that you like just for trying Audible. And uh, to get that offer, just go to audibletrial.com slash and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash to get that offer. And we really thank Audible for supporting Warp 5 and the network. 
Also, we want to give a, a shout out to Andrew Allen and his album, Smooth Federation. That's where the smooth jazz version of Where My Heart Will Take Me that we use here on Warp 5 comes from. Colin, do you like the smooth jazz version better than the one on the show? I do actually like it, yeah. <laughs> I do actually like it. I, I think, you know, I hear people complain all the time about the theme on the show, on the television show. I don't think anyone's going to complain about what Andrew has done here because it's it's a really nice rendition. And much, much better than Russell Watson pretending to be Jack Rod Stewart. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a problem with the theme myself, but I know it grates on a lot of fans. But I, but you can get Andrew's version of Where My Heart Will Take Me, plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek by picking up the album in iTunes or on Amazon. Again, that's Smooth Federation. Go check that out. I promise you're going to love that album. And lastly, there's one more way you can directly help us keep Warp 5 coming to you each week, and that is by getting some aliens. We have original alien illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on the website. And you can mix and match how you want it. We have them as badges and we have them as art prints. And uh, you can decide what you want. We have different contribution levels for you to choose from as well. And your donations help us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the show to you each week. And you'll find them all at trek.afilm slash donate. And we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. All right, Colin. Well, this is usually uh, Kate's little thing here at the end, but I'll do it this week. Uh, I'll just say that uh, I hope you'll join me once again in the decon chamber, along with the listeners in the future. As long as I don't get Paul Fuss rubbing the cream on. <laughs> well, he's the dog at the end of the line, Colin. So, yeah, that's what I mean. That, that'd be my luck. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I hope you'll join me again, and I hope everyone listening will also join us again for another episode of Warp 5. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs>